I'm John Crawl. Today on No Limits, we're going to continue our discussion of food deserts, places where Hoosiers can't get good, nutritious food. This issue will be the subject of a series of town hall meetings and is the focus of upcoming legislation at the state and federal levels. My guests are Tony Gillespie of the Indiana Minority Health Coalition, Kelly McCrary of the American Heart Association, and Emily Weikert Bryant of Feeding Indiana's Hungry. Please join the conversation. Call 866-476-3881. Email is nolimits at wfyi.org. Facebook is no limits WFYI. Twitter is WFYI. Now, this news. Welcome to No Limits. I am John Crawl, director of Franklin College's Pulliam School of Journalism, publisher of the statehousefile.com, and your host. We're going to be talking today about uh, continuing our conversation about food deserts and access to healthy food here in Indiana. That's the uh, the subject of some new legislation and a public forum last week, a series of town halls that, that are coming up. If you would like to con- be part of the conversation, please give us a call at 866-476-3881. You can send an email to nolimits at wfyi.org. Find us on Facebook at No Limits WFYI or on Twitter at WFYI. Well, my guests are Tony Gillespie of the Indiana Minority Health Coalition, Kelly McCrary, who's got a significant title here. She is Senior Community Health Director, the American Heart Association Midwest Affiliate, Indianapolis Metro. They actually print your business card in volumes, I'm pretty sure. (laughs) And Emily Weikert-Bryant, who is the Executive Director of Feeding Indiana's Hungry. Welcome to all of you. Thank Uh you. Sorry to have a little bit of fun with you, Kelly, but welcome (laughs) to the program. It's It's, it's good to have you here. So... uh, Let's start a little bit by talk, talking about uh, what the forum was last week and what we're looking at, because obviously this is this is not the entire – obvious. what we're having here is not the entire conversation. It is just a snippet of what is an ongoing conversation. I'd like to talk a little bit about the starting point and then the steps afterwards, and then we're going to dive into the subject itself. And, uh, Tony, since you're looking at me, I'll start with you. (laughs) Great. Um, The forum was actually, and you framed it correctly, actually the starting point. Um, uh, There was legislation that was sponsored on both the House and the Senate side um, that didn't do what we hoped it would do. Um, It got out of both um, House and Senate committee um, but failed when it got to the floor or failed in ways and means. So we retooled it um, successfully. Uh, It's a study, a summer study committee. Uh, topic now. And so the forum was really bringing all of the interested partners together, all of the affected organizations, community members, to just talk about everything that had gone on during the session and I- explain the life of the bill. You know, I'm just a bill. Yes, I'm only a bill. Just explain how that whole thing happened and where we were yeah, now. Yeah, the schoolhouse rock Schoolhouse approach. rock, exactly. <laughs> I'm showing my age. Yeah, well, um, you and me both. <laughs> <laughs> the schoolhouse rock. And the forum was really just an all-day discussion where we talked about food deserts and food insecurities and healthy food access and how it impacts communities across the state and um, sort of framed the conversation that it's you know, while Indianapolis is the worst food desert in the country, according to the USDA, 
this is something that affects 50% of the state of Indiana is considered a food desert. Um, so it significantly impacts communities all across the state. That's communities of color, low-income communities, rural communities. It's a big issue. Well, and just to clarify, when we say the session, that the House the legislative and the session. Yeah, it was the Indiana General Assembly. Indiana right? General Assembly, correct. So, so uh, we had the forum last week. What, uh, what follows from here, Kelly? Well, what follows is what we discussed at the forum as far as now that people are educated about what's going on here in Indianapolis and they have spoken with other people so the so everyone is educated on the situation in the entire state and what groups that we have that are looking at this issue and working trying to improve this issue, the next step is to let our voices be heard, to make sure that we keep in contact with our state representatives who can help us along the way, such as Andre Carson or um, Robin Shackelford or any of the other um, state representatives that are trying to improve this issue across the state and to stay on top of um, the discussions that are being held in the um, legislative sessions, not to not be afraid to get more involved politically because it does extend more than just your neighborhood and the food bank that you are running, but what you're doing there can expand to the state, and that information needs to be shared on a statewide level, not just local and also up to a federal level where we can look at examples from other states. And there's no reason we can't look at examples from smaller communities here in Indiana of the great things that we're doing and how we are working to improve the situation for um, our state residents. Emily, what's the goal of, of, of driving this conversation? What do you hope will be the result? Well, our perspective is a little bit different than some yeah. of the healthy food access folks. So with the, the food banks, we're already serving in those food deserts, and we're serving folks who are impacted by food deserts because it, to be in a food desert, they're looking at not just where access to a store is but also the income in that area. So if you've got a food desert, odds are good there's a, a pantry there or a mobile pantry or, or someone serving in that area. But the overall purpose of promoting access to healthy foods and, and access in those food deserts is to make sure that everyone of any income has that kind of access and is able to utilize those foods where they might not be able to now. And it's certainly more impactful if you are a low-income person, particularly if you have transportation issues that, that go along with your food insecurity issues. And we know that for our clients, that's very often the case. They're making trade-offs between you know paying for transportation almost 80% of the time when they're choosing between transportation and food. Um, so it's, it's something that we see a lot for the 1.1 million Hoosiers who are served by food banks. If you are just joining us, we are talking about food deserts and an important community conversation that is just starting about uh, what we do about them. If you would like to join the conversation, you can give us a call at 866-476-3881. You can find us on Facebook at No Limits WFYI, on Twitter at WFYI, or you can do what our regular listener named Marion has done and send us an email, which and you can find us there at no limits at WFYI.org. Says thanks for addressing this important topic. Please be sure to acknowledge rural food deserts in communities victimized by industrialized agriculture, ironically claiming to be feeding the world. Repeated application of chemicals and fertilizer on genetically modified monocrops for livestock feed and ethanol contaminate our soil, water, air, and local gardens. Food giants profit by promoting the illusion that meat, dairy, and eggs are humane and essential. However, this is not the case. Building more grocery stores is not the answer. We must resist 
our cruel, unjust, profit-driven, fossil fuel-dependent food food production system and promote a wholesome plant-based diet. Uh, the point here, I think that, uh, and obviously there, there's a lot there. Marion, and you know, is passionate. We know from from talking with her in the past, is passionate about, um, you know, the the ethics of of ag- agricultural production. The point, I think, Marion, with your patience here, uh, that I would like to uh, like to address really is there is a perception that these food deserts are simply an urban problem. And I think, as Tony pointed out, if 50% of the state is affected, that that is more than than just the metro areas. Uh, you know, what are the causes of food? Well, and actually, I ought to I ought to take a step back here and presume that not everyone has talked about this subject as often as as we have. And ask Emily, could you give us a definition of what a food desert is? Uh, I can. I think everyone at this table probably can. Mm-hmm. The the gist of it is that a food desert is the is an area within a certain radius where there is no low stores. access to grocery stores. It doesn't account for convenience stores and, and gas stations, but a grocery store, a super center, um, something of scale. And it also takes into account the poverty in that area as well. So it's a low income, low access is what we're looking for. In an urban area, it's considerably smaller. I believe it's a half mile radius. Mm -hmm. In a rural area, it stretches out further to a 10 mile radius. Um, That being said, if you're without transportation, it doesn't matter if you're a half a mile or 10 miles. If you're you're not able to access something near to you, um, how far away it is doesn't isn't particularly relevant. Um, But what we see in Indiana, and and Tony pointed this out, it's as much an urban problem as it is a rural problem, as is food insecurity. The food insecurity rate in an urban area versus a rural area is about even in Indiana. So Mm -hmm. if you're looking for folks who are having trouble accessing food for any reason, whether it's it's just an access issue, whether it's an income issue, um, it doesn't matter where you are in the state, you're going to be impacted by it. And in terms of the the where are the worst food deserts in in the state of Indiana. Indianapolis. Indianapolis is the worst and you it, you said earlier it's the worst in the country. The worst in the country, yes. Where where what's the source on that? Um, particularly the east side of Indianapolis and the source is just as Emily described access to healthy food. Um, there is one grocery store um, in that area um, that serves the entire radius on the east side and um, it it's not only access to a grocery store, um, and Emily pointed out that does not a convenience store, not the service station, but a grocery store proper. And then, you know, depending on the, the grocery chain and the quality of foods that they carry, that, that weighs mm-hmm. in on it as well. Um, and you, j- just in terms of what we're doing, the conversation, uh, Indianapolis was the place to start because it's the worst in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, but recognizing what's going on across the state and the nuances, the difference between rural, urban, metro, income, um, the access, and then also a way to incorporate this kind of partnership, organizations that may or may not usually work together but have a very different perspective um, on what the food deserts, food insecurity, food access issue is, and bringing us all together for a common goal, and that's to craft legislation and then to educate not only communities but legislators across the state. Um, just because a legislator is elected and participates 
in the session during the General Assembly does not mean that he or she is aware of food access issues in that community and not educated on the impact that it's having on the entire state. So this, what we're doing, this effort is statewide and that it's an opportunity to not only educate community, but to educate our lawmakers and policymakers as well. And when I said the source, I meant who who has determined us? Not USDA. The United States Department of Agriculture. Right. That was a long answer to a short question. Well, that's okay. <laughs> no, no, actually, you gave, me, you gave me the short answer on the, ba- on the back side. So, uh, Kelly, in terms of uh, when we say Indiana is 50 percent, our, our overall is the state near the bottom um, in terms of food deserts in the country? And where are the places that, uh, that are doing better than we are? Unfortunately, Indiana um, is near the bottom in several lists when we're looking at um, health disparities or um, where we rank in terms of smoking or in terms of obesity or in terms of a, a healthy lifestyle in general. So, um, yes, we are among the worst, and we are looking at um, several counties across the state where we can have these town hall meetings to, be- to better educate those counties that are at the bottom just to let, again, to educate people on the problem and, so, and not only educate but also bring solutions. For example, we're looking at um, Lake County in northwest mm-hmm. Indiana, also looking at some of the southern counties as well, um, southern counties that may, might be closer to Ohio, the um, southeastern counties of the state um, around the um, northeast, around the Fort Wayne, Allen County area also. Um, so just to make sure that we are covering all the areas of the state because there are so many urban and rural counties that are affected. What accounts for, because Indiana in theory, and I'm, I'm asking a somewhat naive question knowing that, that, that there is an answer, what accounts for an agricultural state like Indiana being near the bottom? I mean, we produce an awful lot of food here. Why is it that our people aren't getting fed? I'll throw that one to Kelly. Yeah, everyone's pointing at you, Kelly, so I think you're the one who's got to step up and take it. Well, I think um, some of the things that happen, um, depending on how what crop, what vegetables are being grown, how the mm. crops are going year over year, um, what happens with um, finances as far as the upkeep of farms and being able to really produce enough to to feed your family and also to make money if the profit margin is not high enough. Um, it has a lot to do with the environment and the climate. And um, even though people look at Indiana, I mean, there there is more than corn in Indiana, but there mm-hmm. is there the crops that are here may not be as productive as elsewhere. So even though it, it is viewed as a um, agricultural state, um, obviously it's not enough to feed everyone in the state where there are still some deserts that exist. I'm going to let Emily, she wanted to jump in. Yeah, I would just add to that, too. We are an amazing agricultural state, and we work with a lot of the agricultural partners. Um, My office is inside the Indiana Pork Producers. They're fantastic partners. But a lot of what is grown, as far as a crop is concerned, is a commodity crop. What we Mm -hmm. don't have quite as much of our specialty crops, and that's what we actually eat. That's the produce, the fruits and vegetables. So we have fantastic agriculture, but their focus is slightly different on what they're producing and, and where it's going. If you are just joining us, we are talking about food deserts here on No Limits. My guests are Tony Gillespie of the Indiana Minority Health Coalition, Kelly McCrary of the American Heart Association, and Emily Weikert Bryant, who is with Feeding Indiana's Hungry. I'm John Crawl. You're listening to No Limits. Please stay with us.
Welcome back to No Limits. I am John Crawl, director of Franklin College's Pulliam School of Journalism, publisher of the statehousefile.com, and your host. We're talking today about food deserts. That's the issue involving um, access to healthy food, or at least um, nourishing food, in areas both urban and rural. My guests are Tony Gillespie of the Indiana Minority Health Coalition, Kelly McCrary, who is Senior Community Health Director of the American Heart Association, Midwest affiliate, Indianapolis Metro, and Emily Weikert Bryant, who is Executive Director of Feeding Indiana's Hungry. If you'd like to join the conversation, you can send us an email at nolimits at wfyi.org. You can find us on Facebook at No Limits WFYI, on Twitter at WFYI, or you can do what a listener named Ron has done and give us a call at 866-476-3881. Ron, welcome to the program. Hi, John. I had to call in and keep Mary and company. <laughs> All right. Uh, thanks very much, Ron. I, I'm old enough that uh, I remember I grew up about uh, 10 blocks from the circle in a low-income neighborhood, and I still can hear the guy going through the neighborhood, pulling a wagon with a mule, yelling strawberries two pounds for a half a dollar. And I remember how good those strawberries were. And his wagon was loaded with other produce. And I'm throwing this out as a suggestion if there's any entrepreneurs down out there that might, uh, they might want to consider that. I mean, it's, a, it's an idea of getting the food directly to the people, and I think it would work again. Thank you very much, John. Sure thing. Thanks very much for the call and for listening, Ron. Sure, bye. Sure. So is some of it that we've made the process of getting food to people more difficult than it needs to be, that there are too many steps along the way? Emily, I saw you nodding your head. Well, not necessarily. I I was just going to add to that that we have a great colleague who was on the panel this week with the Hoosier Farmers Market Association, Mm -hmm. and they have now 37, I think, farmers markets that are online with SNAP and WIC benefits where you can use your EBT card. That's, from a low-income perspective, what we really want to see places moving to. There's a, I mean, there are farmers markets in a lot of locations. And I should jump in real quickly. There are people who don't live in this world who talk about what WIC and EBT cards are. I'm sorry. Yeah. Occupational hazard. Um, yeah. So SNAP is the, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. It's the food stamps program. Yes. And then WIC is the women nutrition Supplemental Nutrition for Women, Infants, and Children um, that provides... Um, Fruits, fruits and vegetables to uh, pregnant and nursing women and, and children under five. And with these programs, they're loaded on an electronic benefits card, um, same as what you would get unemployment benefits or, or other things. And what the technology we have now is that you can take that card to a farmer's market. They have the, you know, the wireless swipe cards just like you would a credit card, and you can utilize those SNAP and WIC benefits at a, at a lot of those farmer's markets. So it's bringing access to fresh, usually local fruits and vegetables into a community on a regular basis um, and making it even more accessible to, to folks that are on limited incomes who may have difficulty getting enough food. And I probably should ask before we get too much further into this discussion, you know, in terms of the legislation um, that we're looking at that you tried to move, what would it do? I mean, what changes in in both Indiana and federal code would we be looking at? Should I start with you on that one, Tony? Sure. Um, the legislation, really, it began about um, finances, mm-hmm. uh, making dollars available for entrepreneurs, as the gentleman mentioned, to or uh, big box grocers to come into affected communities or areas in the state and um, build. Mm-hmm. Um, and as the legislation moved, we as advocates really got engaged and began to talk about the importance of 
not only big box, but the importance of for-profit and non-for-profit being able to come together to create a sustainable solution that would work best for that community. Um, the idea of build it and they'll come does not always resonate and does not always work. And the worst thing for a grocer um, to build a grocery store in the wrong part of town that nobody utilizes. Um, so we really came together to sort of massage the legislation, though, so that it was a broad response. So it's healthy, um, healthy food finance, but also bringing communities together, for-profit, non-profit, um, hopefully creating some food councils in different parts of the state to just involve community in developing a solution that makes sense. Were we talking about tax incentives, or would it have been actual government outlays? Um, in the state, it would be new dollars, and okay. some of that would be TIF as well. Okay. We are talking. Yes, please. No, and I just want to add to that yeah. also the importance of having a broader perspective of the issue because it's, it's important to see how important um, access to healthy food is from all perspectives. For the American Heart Association, it's um, to um, improve quality of life. And we know that when you, when you eat better, you feel better. You have better um, cardiovascular and overall health. It's an obesity issue. It's a... Um, it's really about chronic disease. It's, issue, it's a chronic disease issue. It, it encompasses so many different areas, and it helps it helps everyone to see the importance of not only getting the food to the people, but also educating on how to cook the food and how how the food is prepared, and um, what what to do with the food, how to, how to store the food. Not just having the food available, but learning from other people the problems of even if you do have the food available, what what do the people do with it? So it's important to see to see the problem from all perspectives and to be able to make sure that we address everything that's involved. I've gotten an email from a listener named Brett, um, and if you'd like to reach out to us via email, you can find us at no limits at wfyi.org. Brett says, folks, demand drives supply. If people want to drink pop, Slurpees, and hot chips, that's what they're going to get. If people want strawberries, lettuce, and fresh produce, that's what they're going to get. I sell my honey where people are going to buy it. How much of this is a problem also of educating the consumers? It it's, has a lot to do with educating the consumer. One, educating the consumer on why certain foods are bad for you and why um, others are better for you. As far as not knowing from a historical perspective, if they weren't raised eating fresh vegetables, they may not know what food is better for them. So it's breaking that cycle of unhealthy eating. And then it's also um, knowing the effects that some of the bad foods have on your on your body, such as eating um, food that's too high in fat or cholesterol, or just knowing how all of that is affecting you and not just um, eating the, ha the fast food hamburger that has a little bit of lettuce and tomato and thinking that that's your vegetable intake, <laughs> but really being educated on what those daily servings of vegetables really mean. So education is a, is a huge factor. I still remember when they tried to color code stuff and a little kid at a school where I was volunteering brought up a box of Skittles and said, I'm taken care of. I would add to that, too. In Indiana, we've got 1.1 million Hoosiers who are being served by a food bank or a pantry. Yeah. And we do a client study every four years. We know from our last client study that in a household with children, almost 90% of the households are reporting that they're buying cheaper food, mm -hmm. and they know they're buying cheaper food. So it's some of it is education and making the right choices, but for a lot of families, there's not a choice. The choice mm -hmm. is what can they afford? Mm -hmm. And if your choice is to buy 
an apple at you know for a dollar at a convenience store because it's close to you or buy four boxes of macaroni and cheese for a dollar at the convenience store and you've got a family to feed that choice is no longer a choice mm-hmm. it's an obvious answer we've gotten a tweet from a listener named heather and if you would like to uh, track us down on twitter you can find us at wfyi heather says what programs are in place to educate those in need on what to do with the food they do gain access to, i.e. cooking? Okay. So, yeah, <laughs> they, they all looked at me. Yeah, um, all right. So part of the, the Supplemental Nutrition Education Program, the SNAP program, is SNAP education. And the Purdue Extensions across the state mm-hmm. have that piece of the puzzle. And so they do regular um, demonstrations of, of how to cook produce or how to cook what's available. And they often do that in a food bank or a pantry where clients are coming in to show them what to do with the food. Um, The Purdue Extension folks also have a a great new program called FoodLink. And with that, um, you can, I mean, it can be used for a commercial or a nonprofit. And for each particular piece of produce you can get in Indiana, and they've got 25 or 30 different ones, there's a card you put up with it, and it's got a QR code and a number of recipes that you can get to from that. So there's a lot of education out there. It's a matter of getting folks to utilize it and making sure that the people who are on the retail end of it, profit or nonprofit, know that those resources are available to them. Well, and it sounds like there's some parallels here in that uh, we've done shows, obviously, and had conversations about hunger in the past, too. And it's there is an abundance of food, but it often doesn't find its way to the people who need it. It sounds like there's an abundance of material here, but it also does not find its way. How do we break through that, or I guess that's not the right metaphor, breakthrough is not what we want, restore that lost connection so that there is a pipeline, either they're getting the information or they're also getting the food. Tony. That's where I think community-based organizations and partnerships are extremely important. Um, Emily mentioned the food banks and the Hoosiers that depend on food banks. Um, You know, that's an incredible partnership to foster, um, to bring that segment of the community get together with the Purdue Extinction, the other service providers, um, to tap into the fact that this is a chronic health condition as well because, you know, low access to healthy food leads to chronic health conditions and premature death. Um, So really taking advantage of all of the providers that exist and bring them together to form some really, really fluid partnerships that systematically address all of those issues um, is extremely important. Even the food access issue, one of our coalitions in South Bend, I believe, there was a farmer's market out of the Michiana area um, that great produce, but the low-income segment of the community didn't have access to it. There was no farmer's market there. They weren't interested in coming there. So what the coalition did was they became certified to accept the EBT card, and they host a farmer's market every every other week now over the summer. And that brings that produce to that segment of the city where they have access to it. So it's being creative in developing those partnerships and some of those sustainable solutions. We are talking about food deserts here on No Limits. If you'd like to join the conversation... You can do what a listener named Ben has done and give us a call at 866-476-3881. Ben, welcome to the program. Hello. Hello. What's Earlier, on your I heard uh, you mentioned that the worst part in the state is Indianapolis, and the worst part really of Indianapolis is the east side. And I was just wondering, why is it that grocery stores don't really want to build on the east side? And we, there could be various reasons, but... 
when I think of grocery stores, they typically are for profit and their profit margins are real slim anyway. And at the same time, you know, not to be, you know, stereotyping anything, but the east side is got a higher crime rate typically than the other parts of town. So I was just curious if there's any correlation with that and why grocery stores aren't actually wanting to build on the east side. Thanks very much for the call and the question, Ben. Who would like that one? Anyone? Tony? I'll right. tackle. I mean, uh, the, the reality is, is this. There, there are um, some... Um, it is a high crime area, um, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean that the residents there don't deserve access to healthy food. Um, so that's why this legislation is important that we look at a solution that's sustainable. Um, right now, there is a grocery store that's going to be building, uh, I think, in the Avondale, Avondale Meadows mm-hmm. area, um, Save-A-Lot, mm-hmm. um, which is a, a mainstream grocer. Um, and so we're looking for more solutions. Um, they just built the Myers, or they just opened the Myers mm-hmm. on Keystone, which is in that area. Um, so there are some real crime issues. That, that is a high crime area, but that doesn't mean that folks don't deserve access to healthy food. And uh, you know, again, dovetailing on other discussions we've had on this program, uh, doesn't that sort of raise the chicken and egg question, too? Because uh, I know Police Chief Troy Riggs, for example, in his approach to tackling crime, mm-hmm. trying to reduce those rates, has has made, you know... Great strides. Nutri- well, nutrition part mm-hmm. of that approach, that exactly. holistic approach. Yes, Emily? Well, it's something that I would insert into this as well, because when we've talked about the bill that... Um, the General Assembly has discussed, and I would add that the sponsors of, of those bills have been Representative Robin Shackerford from here in Indianapolis and then Senator Randy Head from Logansport. So mm-hmm. he's got a fairly urban or a rural area up there. Mm-hmm. We've wanted to make sure that to, to be able to access the funds and the revolving loans and the grants, that nonprofits are eligible as well, or things like co-ops. You know, if a big box isn't going to come to a neighborhood, they're not going to come because it's not best for them. They are, right. they are you know, they have to be profit driven Mm -hmm. because they have to be able to pay their employees. Um, But what we are most enthused about in this legislation is that it would allow existing nonprofits that are serving in in areas that are food deserts to increase their capacity. So if you have a church pantry that's in the middle of a food desert and there's nothing around, they would be eligible to, you know, be able to get grants to increase their access to additional freezer capacity or refrigeration so that they would be able to distribute more from the charitable sector, but it would also allow nonprofits to think outside the box. So mm-hmm. we have, you know, food banks who are interested in whether they could, you know, come up with a model like a, a neighborhood food club where you, you pay in a certain amount mm-hmm. on a regular basis and you have access to a shopping experience just like you would in a grocery store. And it's designed to target low-income individuals in low-income areas where there may not be other options and there may not be the for-profit sector wanting to come in to provide those options. Right. We've gotten a Facebook comment from regular listener named Gary. Gary writes, uh, as a person who's experiencing this issue for the first time, and because Indianapolis has been defined as the worst in the country, I am now trying to use the Blue Indy to make reaching food possible. Additionally, if no charging station is close, then I am waiting for the Kroger click list to drive um, to to pick up my order and drive it home and unload. I mean, is some of this also? Gary can't be the only one who's without transportation. We've talked about mm-hmm. about this. 
How much of this problem also would be alleviated by, uh, we, you know, just recently did a show on upgrading the public transit system, mm-hmm. creating ways for people to get to the stores that do exist. Everyone's nodding their heads. We actually mm-hmm. need words and radio <laughs> speech here. <laughs> so I'll, I'll throw that one to Kelly. Oh, sure. Transportation yeah. is, is a huge issue. It's, yeah. it's a it's a low access issue. And um, the inability to drive um as Emily said, the inability to drive either one mile or ten miles to get your food is is an issue. So if there were the um, the proper transportation in place, um, if it were not so difficult, if it did not take an hour and a half bus drop, bus ride and, and three different bus transfers to get to the store that has the fresh produce that you want, um, then that would alleviate a lot of the issues for people in the in the urban food deserts. Um, well, the rural also, but it would definitely alleviate some of the problems because it would be easier to, to travel. Yeah, Tony. Well, and, and then the caller earlier with uh, the reference to the the cart and the mule mm-hmm. selling mm-hmm. produce in the neighborhood. We're also looking at there are also options available to make produce mo- mobile, to um, green bean delivery and some of the others uh, to make it mobile and accessible at the community level as well. And I should loop back also to Marion's original question too, though. In some ways... Uh, because we we still do focus on on the urban piece of this public transportation system because of the scale works in metro areas better, less so in rur- really rural areas. I mean, what are the solutions or the interventions there, Emily? You know, something that we see um, on the the clients that we focus on, and that's about one in six Hoosiers, is that if they're experiencing food insecurity, if they don't know where their next meal is coming from, that's not the only issue that's impacting them. It may be health, it may be housing, it may be transportation, you know, and it usually just goes back to an income issue. Um, So transportation may work in places where there's mass transit available, and a lot of, of rural areas there isn't. And unfortunately, there's not a great solution to that. Something that our folks do... Um, from the food banks and the pantries is to send out a mobile pantry where they go to where clients are. So if there's a, a park mm-hmm. or someplace that, you know, or a large apartment building um, where people congregate, from a, an anti-hunger perspective, we try to get the food to where they are. But it's a lot harder to do in, in a rural area. And, mm-hmm. and so we try to Absolutely. think outside the box. Mm-hmm. We are talking about food deserts here on No Limits. If you'd like to join the conversation, please give us a buzz at 866-476-3881. You can send us an email at nolimits at wfyi.org. Find us on Facebook at No Limits WFYI or on Twitter at WFYI. My guests are Tony Gillespie of the Indiana Minority Health Coalition, Kelly McCrary, the American Heart Association, and Emily Weckert-Bryant of Feeding Indiana's Hungry. I'm John Kroll. You're listening to No Limits. Please stay with us. Welcome back to No Limits. I am John Crawl, director of Franklin College's Pulliam School of Journalism, publisher of the statehousefile.com, and your host. We're talking today about food deserts. There was a public forum last week that, that kicked off what's going to be a series of community conversations about this issue, um, a series of town halls, and there also is legislation at both the state and federal level in the works. My guests are Tony Gillespie of the Indiana Minority Health Coalition, Kelly McCrary, who's Senior Community Health Director 
the American Heart Association Midwest affiliate, Indianapolis Metro, and Emily Weikert Bryant, who is executive director of Feeding Indiana's Hungry. If you'd like to join the conversation, you can do what a listener named Hannah has done and give us a call at 866-476-3881. Hannah, welcome to the program. Hi, how are you guys doing today? We are... Um, so I just had two questions for you. You guys have already kind of touched on both of them. Um, how will, um, as a collective group, you guys work to bring uh, grocery stores with healthy food options to food desert areas instead of really the easiest option uh, that's going to be available to these areas? And then with that question, um, will these grocery stores assist with any kind of cooking classes with these healthy foods? Thanks very much for the call and the questions, Hannah. So, should I throw that one to to uh, to Tony first? Sure. Yeah, okay. I think we can all weigh in. Yeah. Um, um, uh, Indiana Minority Health Coalition. We also have a national diabetes program, um, and part of that program, um, in addition to um, addressing pre-diabetic issues. Um, we sort of assess the fact that, and I think both Kelly and Emmy, Emily alluded to it earlier, that once healthy produce is available, people don't always know what mm-hmm. to do with it. How do you, what do you do with a, um eggplant? eggplant or <laughs> what do you do, how do you cook asparagus so it's not soggy and over, you know, overcooked? Mm-hmm. Um, and these are foods that... Um, don't live in England, then, but that's <laughs> a whole other story. Yeah. <laughs> but that's, yeah. Um, these are foods that people don't know how to cook. So yeah. a lot of the... Larger grocery stores, um, we work with both Kroger and Marsh. They are incorporating healthy cooking classes into it, and we're also working with chefs. And there's several organizations. The food banks across the state do a great job now with bringing in um, the Purdue Extension Program and holding cooking classes, and it's a matter of making it accessible and um, teaching a whole generation, you know, hot potato chips versus vegetables. Mm-hmm. If you didn't grow up with access to vegetables and how to cook, you don't know how. So that is something that we're definitely concerned about and something that we're looking at. Emily? I would add that, you know, part of that is it's a matter of culture and it's a matter of what you're accustomed to. Mm-hmm. And the the by far the most important piece to making sure that adults are eating healthier is focusing on, focusing on them when they're children. Exactly. So, you know, we work mm-hmm. quite a bit with the school nutrition folks, the, the school lunch program, the school breakfast program, the summer food service program. If you need to know where to eat lunch, call 211 this summer, and there's some place near you. Um, but if, you're, if kids are accessing these programs through the United States Department of Agriculture as a child, they're going to be accessing more diverse fruits and vegetables when their palate mm-hmm. is you know, younger and, and more amenable to it. And when you grow up with that, you're more likely to eat that way as an adult if you can. We are talking about food deserts here on No Limits. Scott, welcome to the program. Yes, hello. Hello. What's on your mind? Hi. Um, I, uh, for full disclosure, I'm actually a driver for Green Bean Delivery. That was just uh, mentioned by right. one of your panels Yay. earlier. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, it seems kind of a, a no-brainer that, you know, mobile produce uh, organizations like Green Bean um, kind of eliminate food deserts in some way. However... Uh, that involves people actually using the services. Um, and I'm wondering if you had any ideas on whether that is something cultural um, as to why maybe it's not more utilized um, or if it's economic, if it's um, something entirely uh, different that I'm missing here. Um, and then a second follow-up question is I'm wondering if you know of any organizations that 
promote gardening um, as a way to, or, or kind of getting people involved in uh, gardening, whether that's in their neighborhood or in their own home, to help alleviate uh, the food desert issue. Um, as Please far rally. as far as thanks very um, much for the call. Thank Scott. you for the call. Sure. Thank you. Um, as far as the issue of not using services that are available, I think that's a huge educational issue. Um, it may be a cultural issue as well, or it may be issues that um, we're not completely aware of, which is why getting out into the communities and um, having these conversations and um, having the education available to people is important. Um, it, it may be looked at as a more expensive option, and in reality, it may not be more expensive than the cost to get to the store and pick out the produce that you need and get back home. So it may be the best option for someone, but if they are unaware of that, then they're not going to use it. So with some of the um, some of the options outside of a grocery store, um, and that's what people are used to, they need to be educated on what these other options are and how mm -hmm. they can work best for them. Outside of a grocery store, some people may be more afraid of going to um, a farmer's market or using a green bean delivery service or anything that's not the norm of what they've grown up with. Gotten a Facebook question from a listener named Sarah. If you'd like to find us on Facebook, you can do so at No Limits WFYI. Sarah says, I'm wondering how urban gardens are contributing, not contributing to this problem. There's a lot of push in education and community involvement to plant a garden to provide free food to those who might need it. I am a skeptic but would like more info. On another note, IPS offers free food, which includes two meals and a snack to their students. The snack is a fresh fruit or vegetable. I'm happy to see many students partake in this as they eat bags of raw broccoli, etc. So, <laughs> it's a beautiful thing to see. <laughs> yes, yes. So let's deal with the question, though. Are urban gardens you know, an actual solution to this problem or, you know, a fad? I think that's an actual solution depending okay. on, the, on the community and the access. And um, I'm originally from Northwest Indiana. I'm originally from Gary. And the um, concept of urban gardening or community gardens has really began to grow. Now it's something that's part of the municipal function. The city has become part of that, and they're spearheading um, – those low-income, low-access communities with gardens. So I think that's a viable option. I think it's a, I think it's a really viable micro-option. Right. Um, mm -hmm. I was on a panel last week with Tyler Goff with Indy Urban Acres. They're, for one, they're actually having kids out there to teach them about gardening. They will send them home with plants. They will send them home with starters. Uh, with SNAP benefits, you can actually buy starter plants and seeds to mm. grow your own garden. Um, but a lot of, of kids and a lot of adults don't know how. So, you know, that is a little bit of a barrier. Um, to have a garden in your area that you're able to access or a community garden does a great service to that community. Does it alleviate hunger across the state or across the country? No. 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 That's, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a scale issue mm -hmm. there. Um, but it's certainly something that can provide benefit to the locality where it's, it's mm -hmm. at and, and provide not just the fruits and vegetables of their labor, but, you know, the actual experience of doing it and, and knowing how to. I realize there's an awful lot of interest in this. Obviously, we've gotten calls and questions, um, and people are clearly want to talk about this issue, which leads us to the point of where the next stage of these conversations go, the town halls. Could you talk a little bit about how those town halls are going to be structured? 
and uh, you know provide some information about where the schedule is if people want to show up and and discuss this this question. Who who would like to take the lead on that? Okay, Tony. Um, we are scheduling six town hall meetings. We're in the process of scheduling them now. Um, that will be Gary, South Bend, Fort Wayne, uh, Jasper, um, Warsaw, Bloomington, and uh, Terre Haute. Um, we're still in the process of identifying the, the date, so it's sort of to be announced at this point. Um, how the town hall meetings will be structured, um, legislators are being invited to participate to talk about the legislation and the process. Um, community members that generally, or the, the usual suspects in addressing food insecurity, food desert issues, the food banks, and then also some of the innovative solutions that exist in, in the area. Um, we're gonna, it's going to be a panel discussion. And when I say innovative solutions, there are farmers across the state that have aquatics that they use um, mm-hmm. to create the, the super vegetables. Um, there are uh, in Gary, there's a Black McDonald's Association that has started to incorporate healthy foods into the McDonald's menu, and they're they're basing it on that we don't want to be known as only serving artery-clogging foods. So they're mm-hmm. a much version of a healthier salad that includes salad greens versus iceberg lettuce. That's going to be part of the panel. There are a number of municipalities that are addressing the, the gardening issue. Those are going to be part of the panel. So it's really a conversation to talk about where we are, where we've been, where we are, and where we need to go with this, um, with this issue, and to really look at a variety of solutions. Grocers will be part of these panels as well um, to just have an honest discussion about where we are. And really, when you talk about 56% of the state is a food desert, to identify where my community fits in that description of 56%. So it's really a lot of education and next steps, um, really garnering support of legislators that didn't participate or sponsor this this. Mm-hmm legislation to make them part of and educate them as well. And uh, when you have the schedule set, is there a URL or someplace people can go to, to figure out the dates? What what would that be? Once we have the um, schedule, we'll post it on our website. I'm pretty sure our partners partner will do the same thing. Also. And then we have a... Um, this we're part of a coalition that we've developed, the um, Indiana Healthy Food Access Coalition, and we'll post it and send it out. We're all tweeterholics and Facebookers and so we'll make sure that it gets we'll out. We'll make sure the word gets out. Okay. We've gotten an email from a listener named Jane, and if you'd like to reach out to us by email, you can find us at no limits at WFYI.org. Jane says, I have enjoyed your program. Thank you, Jane. I think we need home economics back in the schools. This crisis <laughs> is, mm-hmm. is serious. I learned that Marsh is closing their giant store at German Church in Washington Street on the east side. Uh I see everyone sort of shaking their heads emphatically that the, the crisis is serious and we need home economics back in there. Kelly, can you make the case for restoring home economics to school? <laughs> to school. Hit it, Kelly. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, I think that all goes back to the, to the education aspect. A lot of the education does indeed start in schools. I can't specifically um, make a case for getting home, home economics back in schools, but I can say that um, a lot of the education that that parents receive does come from their from their students at school. Um, at American Heart Association, we sponsor teaching gardens at certain schools, and those kids are learning how to grow their own vegetables, and that is knowledge that they can take back home to their parents who may not have gardened before in their life. So, I I do believe that being able to reach children where they can have that education and it can stick with them as they grow is extremely important. 
gotten a question from uh, a listener named Eric on Facebook. And if you want to find us on Facebook, we're at No Limits WFYI. Eric says, how does the issue change when we think about the rural areas and small towns that are also food deserts? In terms of how we approach solving this problem, how does the the place, the the nature of the place in which people live? I'll throw that one to Emily. (laughs) Um, Well, Indiana has quite a bit of rural areas, and and we see this, you know, across the state where access is is a problem, Um, whether it be you know, getting to a big box or finding a food pantry that's open in your area um, without having to drive to the next town or the next county. Um, I can tell you from a nonprofit perspective, we we really just look at it as how can we get to where the clients are. Mm -hmm. So that's going to be making sure that the pantries that we work with um, have as much of a regular schedule as we can possibly get them to have so that there's always an option open. Um, How do we better promote what's available? Um, you know, in Indianapolis, I would venture to guess there's a community dinner pretty much every night of the week, and you may not know where they all are. You know, so 201 is a, a, an incredible asset across the state because you can call that and find out what's near to you. Um, from a commercial perspective, it's, it's a different story, um, and that comes back to working in local communities with, you know, food policy councils or your local economic development council mm-hmm. um, to bring the parties together and, and to see what kind of changes can be made in those local communities. What are the obstacles to getting people to work together? I mean, we keep saying that this is the big challenge. What are the obstacles, the things that we have to surmount to get this done? Well, I think we've touched on um, the availability of information um, and making sure that we do a better job at um, health health promotions or getting the word out to the most vulnerable or affected communities. Um, in terms of organizational partnerships, it's all of the – and that that can be a real issue. So it's all of the traditional things that go along with that um, in terms of forming a bond where we work together and reducing I and, and increasing mm-hmm. us. Um, that's always a big issue. Um, and then I also think that in many instances in some communities, it's, it's a trust issue. If there mm-hmm. hasn't been that kind of effort from any community-based organization before, how do I trust you? Um, how How... What is it that you're going to do for me that's different than anyone else has done? So I think those are some of the basic issues that we all have to be cognizant of and and begin to work through. And Um, and I I just want to add that I think this partnership, we're hoping that this sort of partnership is modeled across the state as we really bring providers, uh, usual suspects and the unusual suspects, that we bring everybody together and figure out a way that we can work together to address the issue. Yes, Kelly. And and I think the like the form that we had last week was vitally important so that people can look at the commonalities, not just the differences. I live in a rural area, you're in a more urban area, we can't work together, or I'm in a certain part of the state and you don't know how my part of the state works. I think a lot of that can be erased once we get on the same page with the conversation and really find out the commonalities and what what I'm doing in my community may work in your community if we, like Tony said, stop stop with the eyes and look at the we and the, the what's best for our state. Got a question from a listener named Abby uh, via Facebook. You can find us on Facebook at No Limits WFYI. Abby says you may have addressed this earlier, but where does EBT fit into fighting food deserts? Can you use EBT at farmers markets through green bean delivery 
et cetera. We did address that, but it's a question worth asking again and making sure we get the information out there. Emily. Absolutely. There are more than 300 um, grocery stores and other vendors accepting EBT across the state. There's 30-some farmers markets, and that is always a number that uh, is looking to be grown. And there's two different state agencies that work with that, both Family and Social Services Agency and the State Department of Health. Um, and then the Hoosiers Farmer Mar- Hoosier Farmers Market Association. And if I could jump in for a second, because we are getting a little bit mm-hmm. tight on time. If people wanted to find out which of those providers do take, you know, that form of, mm-hmm. of, of payment or compensation, where would they find it? I'd have to tell them to Google the USDA's Farmers Market site, and it will tell you what um, different benefits are accepted at different farmers markets across the state. Um, and that that's the best way to do it? That's the, the fastest way I can tell you to do it without Googling it myself. But the USDA has a map that you can pull up mm-hmm. all the farmer's markets and, and where they accept different benefits. And could I ask if it's possible to put that link on our Facebook Absolutely. page? Absolutely. Anybody who dry, comes back here on this site can go to our Facebook page and we'll have the information there. Absolutely. Therefore, you, courtesy of our guests, <laughs> I would like to thank you all. This has been a fascinating conversation. Like yeah, real quickly, Tony. We're we want to quick. thank you. WFYI has done an incredible Absolutely. job in a series at addressing poverty and some of these other issues. So thank you. Oh well, it's our pleasure. I'd like to thank my guests, Tony Gillespie, T- Kelly McCrary, and Emily Weikert Bryant. We're going to be back on Thursday when we're going to have a similar related conversation. We're going to continue our conversation about poverty and opportunity in America called Chasing the Dream. I am John Crawl. You've been listening to No Limits. Thank you for joining us. No Limits is a production of 90.1 WFYI Public Radio, Indianapolis. Executive producer, Michelle Johnson. Producer, Shannon Cagle. Interactive media coordinator, Scott McAllister. Technical producers, Cedric Freeman and Chris Flood. And board engineer, Joe Hatcher. Abby Cherzini screens our calls. No Limits is made available through IPBS, Indiana's public broadcasting station. 